This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. This is the first in a in a series of of four debate series uh, four debates that will be uh, taking on the question of, of how the structure of, of, of inequality has has changed and the direction to which we're, we're, we're the, the direction in which we're moving with respect to issues of inequality and poverty and what if anything might be done uh, with respect to, to, to new types of social policy that might 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 address some of the changes that are that are underway um, this this debate series and there'll be four of these debates over the course of this quarter this debate series uh, is, is hosted by the, the just-founded Center for the Study of, of Poverty and Inequality, uh, and it's co-sponsored also by IRIS, by, by CCRES, by, uh, by the Stanford Center on, on Ethics, and by the uh, Ethics in Society program. So what, what we're going to be doing today is, is, is ask why it is that, that uh, inequality has increased so spectacularly uh, over the last 30 years or so in the United States and, and in other countries. And, the, and the, the title for, for this uh, debate is uh, Income Inequality, uh, Where Are We Going and what is, to be, what is to Be Done? Let me, let me turn to just a few, few introductions. Uh, I, I'm David Grusky, and I, I'm going to be uh, moderating this, this, this debate. And we have here uh, two uh, real superstars uh, with us today who will, who will take on this, this, this question. Uh, we have on the one hand uh, uh, Bob Frank, who's... who's uh, uh, Henrietta Johnson Lewis, Professor of Management uh, at Cornell University, and also Professor of Sociology at, at sorry, I wish Sociology, <laughs> but, but in fact, Professor of, of, of Economics at, at, at Cornell University. Uh, and he's also uh, a monthly contributor to the Economic Scene column in the New York Times, and has generated a series of, of truly influential books, including, including uh, uh, Choosing the Right Pond, Luxury Fever, The Winner-Take-All Society, and, and many more. Um, and all I can say is if, if, you, if for some, some bizarre reason you haven't yet read all these books, you, you really should, should, <laughs> should, should run out and, 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 and do so now, or, or we'll wait until the end of the debate uh, and, then, and then get to it. Uh, on the other hand, we have uh, Bruce Western, who's, who's a professor of now sociology at Princeton University, uh, and has completed path-breaking, very important work on the issue of, 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 of unions, on, the, on, on, on incarceration and the implications of rising incarceration rates, on the application of, of uh, Bayesian statistics to, to problems in, in social science. This is what I, what I would say about, about Bruce Western in trying to understand how important he is. If sociology had the, the John Bates Clark Medal, which as you may know is the, the medal given in economics to the, to the most, most to the best economist under the age of 40. If we had that in sociology, everyone knows that Bruce would have gotten it. Uh, so what, what does that mean? He didn't read Choosing the Right Pond, because he should have chosen a pond that, that had that medal, but alas, <laughs> he, he chose one that was medalless. Uh, what's the structure for today? We're, we're, we're going to uh, let each of our two speakers, starting with, with uh, Bob Frank, speak for 25 minutes. Uh, and then after that, we'll just open it up for questions from, from, from the floor. So welcome first to Bob Frank. Thank you very much, David, for inviting me to appear uh, in this forum. Uh, Bruce Western and I had breakfast this morning and discovered 
not at all to my surprise that we didn't have much to debate uh, in earlier conversations about the event. I had urged uh, David to recruit one of the crazies who we could really have a, a big argument with, but since our positions are both so sensible, uh, we, we won't really find much to clash about. Even though he's a sociologist, I'm an economist with sociological leanings. He's a sociologist with economic leanings. We're really, really not occupying different parts of the spectrum by and large. What I'm going to try to do in my 25 minutes is give you a sense of how the pattern of income growth has changed over the last 50 or, or so years. It's really been uh, a sea change in the pattern that occurred uh, about in the, well, we debate, but anywhere from the late 60s to the late 70s. And uh, what the consequences have that been for spending patterns and in turn for welfare levels of middle class families? If you want to a one-sentence summary uh, of what I'm going to try to persuade you. I'm going to try to persuade you of this claim here. The middle-class family's condition has grown more difficult because of sharply rising inequality of income and wealth. And I'll try to give you a, a, just a, a rough outline sketch of why that's happened. First of all, uh, that's the famous picket fence diagram that shows that income was growing at about the same rate across the various income classes in the decades immediately following World War II. If anything, you'll notice that the income growth rate for the top 5% was actually a little bit lower than for the rest of the groups. Uh, that's the, the bright orange bar at the end. But, but the, the difference isn't much, and, and if you had to come up with a, a simple description of that chart, you'd say everyone's income was growing at about the same rate. Consumption was growing in balance during that era. There wasn't a lot of agitation about inequality. People weren't really much talking about it. There were rich and poor, obviously, then as now, but the subject of in, income inequality was simply not on the radar screen. That pattern changed in a dramatic way in the ensuing decades. Notice uh, that the bottom 20% actually lost ground. This is in real purchasing power terms. That's quite unusual for uh, a length of time uh, equal to the period covered uh, in, the, in the graph there because we were not mired in recession or economic downturn during that time. One big segment of the US population was actually losing ground for a multi-decade period. And for that matter, Virtually everyone in the middle was on a treadmill. They weren't really gaining anything uh, to speak of compared to what they had when that period began. You started to see some gains in the top 20%, although notice there too that the, the rate of growth of income was uh, less than for the earlier period. Top 5%, they're getting uh, a little bit better off. There were two other changes though that aren't shown in that uh, graph on the bottom that I think uh, mask what was really going on. Uh, if you look at the top 1%, so most of the gains have occurred within the top 20%, but the real action has been at the very top of that group. And if you look at after-tax changes in income, there's been some extra action there, too, with first the Reagan tax cuts of the 1980s and now the tax cuts implemented by George W. Bush. It's a, it's a pattern that seems the same no matter how we slice the population up. Uh, you can look at the bottom uh, quintile, and you'll see earnings either declined or, or not growing to speak of. The middle quintile, uh, again, ne negligible growth, all the growth at the top quintile. And if you look at college graduates, it's the same pattern there. It's not just a question of uh, the educated people doing well and the, the rest doing uh, poorly. Within the group of college graduates, the people at the bottom of that group have been stagnating. The people at the top have been doing spectacularly well. If you look at dentists, it's the same pattern there. 
the top dentists have been prospering as never before. The median dentist isn't doing much better than 20 years ago. The top 1%, uh, that's the same pattern there. The people at the bottom of the top 1% are not getting too much of the gains of the top 1%. It's the very, and it holds true for the top tenth of a, a percent. As high up as we can go, that pattern seems to repeat itself. We don't have good data for people that far up in the income distribution, but there are occasional snapshots. Here's one. Uh, Business Week's been following CEO pay for a long time, and there, what, uh, two, two numbers stand out. Uh, the, the 1980 figure, CEOs of the America's largest companies' uh, salaries as a ratio of the average worker's salary, 42 in 1980. That had grown to 531 by the year 2000. Just a spectacular increase in incomes at the top while incomes everywhere else have been largely stagnant. Well, why is that? Have there been changes in the distribution of human capital? That's what economists always say is the root cause of changes in earnings. How much did your experience, your education, uh, those other factors that determine how productive you are change? Here we don't see any big changes in the distribution of human capital. There are about as many smart people, as many average people as, as always. Uh, it's not that. The foreign competition at the low end has surely been a factor in some industries. Uh, Low-skilled workers have been displaced by people who are willing to work for less abroad. That's, that's undoubtedly true. But that doesn't explain the pattern in lots of other cases. Dentists, for example, don't face competition from abroad, or at least most dentists don't. Uh, somebody told me that you can get a, a, a very nice vacation in India and a lot of dental work done all for the lesson you'd spend here on the dental work uh, if you have enough high-end dental work to have done. But basically, it's, it's not foreign competition. Technical change favoring the most educated workers. It's true that the, the tech people have done better than the English majors, but the, the English majors, if you look at that group, the people at the top have been doing extremely well there. The lower tech people are not doing so well. Phil Cook and I argued that at least some of this is due to the spread of a reward structure we call, for want of a better term, winner-take-all markets. The idea is that your reward depends not so much on how you perform absolutely, but how you perform relative to your nearest competitors, and that near the top of these competitions, there can be very small differences in absolute performance that translate then into huge difference in final reward. So why, for example, did Steffi Graf earn twice as much in 1994 as in 1993? Any tennis fan in the audience would know the answer to that question. Gavin, what do you... Monica Sellis got stabbed and wasn't on the tour in 1994 and had been beating Steffi Graf in the finals of tournaments the year before. With, with her gone, playing at the same absolute level, Steffi Graf's earnings skyrocketed. I get calls from reporters about university presidents' pay. Isn't it obscene what the boards of trustees are doing? They're paying a million dollars for nonprofit corporation heads like a university president. Well, suppose you're looking for a university president. What's the main thing that person's got to do at one of the elite universities? The, the real red uh, letter activity is presiding over the next capital campaign. Uh, I don't know how big Stanford's next one's going to be. I'm guessing Cornell's next one will be $3 billion or $4 billion. It'll be somewhere in that neighborhood. Suppose you got two candidates. One is a just noticeable difference better than the other in terms of your estimate of how well he or she will do it presenting the university's case to the donor community. Uh, that's not a, a, a person you wouldn't want to hire anyway because the kind of skills you need to make a good case to the donor committee are 
uh, in many ways, the same skills as you'd want in somebody to run the university. But if there's a just noticeable difference, let it be small, 2%. If it were any smaller than that, you wouldn't even notice that, there, that one was better than the other. $4 billion campaign, that's $80, $80 million difference in terms of what the better candidate's going to bring in. Uh, why are they paying a million dollars is an interesting question, but it should be why are they paying only a million dollars? And it's going to get to a higher number than it is now in a series of just noticeable different steps. No one's going to pay two million next year because that would bring down the wrath of the media. Uh, nobody wants to be in the spotlight, but somebody will pay a, a million one and then a million two and it'll, it'll ratchet up. This creates problems for people in the, in the middle in a variety of ways. Uh, their standard of living seems less adequate. Uh, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal. I lived in a house with two rooms, a grass roof, no plumbing, no electricity. It was a great house in that context. In this context, it wouldn't seem like such a good house. Uh, I'd be embarrassed to have uh, friends over for dinner. My kids wouldn't want their friends to know where we live. It's the same house. I'm the same person. The context is what's different. And when you get poorer in a relative sense, the things you consume seem less adequate to you. And that's a psychological cost. Maybe the best thing to do about that is to say to people, well, uh, it's no big deal, get used to it. There are many other costs associated with increased inequality that I think are much harder to urge people just to get used to, and I'll try to describe some of them in the time I have. Think about this thought experiment. You're the median earner in society, and you face this choice. You can save enough to support a comfortable standard of living during your retirement. In that case, you'll be able to buy a house in a school district where students score in the 20th percentile in reading and math. Alternatively, you can save too little to support a comfortable standard of living in retirement, but the extra cash you can scrape together then will let you buy a house in a school district where students score in about the middle of the percentile distribution. Which would you do? Which would you choose? It's a tough choice. Most parents would choose the second, they say, and nobody certainly would look down on a parent for making that choice. And if, if, if you didn't have the willingness to sacrifice your future standard of living to get a little bit of an advantage for your children, people would say, what kind of parent are you really? Uh, so this is the choice people face, and the, the irony of the choice is that if we all save less for retirement, all spend more to get a house in a better school district, what is a good school district? It's one that's a relatively good one. And no matter how much we all bid, 50% of the students are going to be in the bottom half. That's, that's the rub here. So if you want to send your child to a, an average quality school, you've got to buy a house that's priced near the middle of the distribution for your area. In 1980, that was a 1,600-square-foot house. Now it's over 2,100 square feet. There have been other escalations in, in price not associated just with the size of the house. So now the median earner has to buy a house that's at least a third more expensive, probably more expensive than that in real terms. The median earner doesn't have more real income than before, as I uh, tried to show in the earlier slides. And so that's, that's a real burden on the typical family in the middle to meet a basic goal, which is to get your children into a school that matches where you stand in the overall distribution of things, you've got to now sacrifice much, much more than you used to have to, to do. Why is that? Well, uh, my claim is that the thing that's really driving this has been extra spending at the top. I don't mean to uh, suggest that this is a moral indictment of the people who are buying big mansions and fancy jewels and taking uh, opulent vacations. When people get more money, they spend more. That's what every income group do does. It's totally human nature to do that. 
when the top earners spend more, that shifts the frame of reference, not for people in the middle class. Nobody cares how big uh, Paul Allen's mansion is uh, that you or I spend time with. They may be interested in it because it's a spectacular building, but uh, nobody aspires to such a, a building. But people just below the top are influenced when he builds that big. Maybe they wanted to build bigger but thought it would be unseemly to do so. Now they can build a little bigger themselves, which they wanted to do all along. Or maybe it's now the custom to have your daughter's wedding reception in the home. And so we need to build bigger too. So the people just below the top have been building bigger. And they associate closely with people near them in the income distribution. They'll, they're building bigger too, and so on all the way down the income ladder. It's not just houses, it's in every domain. So how heavy should your car be? Great car, the Honda Civic. It's bigger than the Accord was 10 years ago, better in every measurable way. But 10 years ago, you wouldn't have had to share the road with a Ford Excursion you're five times more likely to be killed in an accident if you run into one of those vehicles. Uh, and so if you say to yourself, I, I might just consider getting a Ford uh, Grand Vic Victoria 4,000 pound sedan out of concern for what's going to happen to my family if there's a collision with one of these things, you're not a mentally defective person. You're just looking out for costs that uh, might threaten your family. How much should you spend on an interview suit? We know from experiments that the better dressed candidate gets an edge. Maybe the interviewers don't even know that the better dressed candidate is better dressed. Uh, it's just something subliminal. Well, if everyone else is dressing better, you better dress better too. These contests are close. The, the, the people who want the job you want are as qualified as you are in most instances. And it's an investment, you could say. But when everybody spends more, the MBA students at Cornell are spending about $1,500 on custom suits now, the same jobs end up going to the same people as before. There's some waste here. How much do you need to spend on gifts? You're, you're invited to a friend's house for dinner. How, how good a wine should I bring? The, the value-oriented advice columnists of the Wall Street Journal say, plan on spending about $30. Interesting advice. You can buy a Cabernet today uh, in any decent wine shop. That's better, the UC Davis experts say, than the wines drunk by the King of France 200 years ago. How do they know? Uh, they, they feel confident that it's true. And there are some great ones. Why not give one of those? It'll drink fine. You don't want to run the risk of being seen as somebody who didn't appreciate that it was a special occasion. You got to give a gift that sort of speaks to the occasion. Your wife got a promotion. How, how good a watch do you need to buy? Uh, your your uh, friend, friend's daughter, best friend's daughter's getting married. How much do you need to spend on a gift there? This is all context, and the context has shifted because of Cascade launched in the first instance by people with extra money at the top. It's not about the money. Uh, Here's what we would have said. You're not trying to show that you can spend a lot. You just want to show that you recognize it's, a, it's an important occasion. How do they do it? How do people keep up if they don't have more income? They work every conceivable margin is the short answer. They work longer hours, those who do work. They don't save as much. Last year, we had a negative savings rate for the country as a whole, first time since the Great Depression. Increased indebtedness, longer commutes, Every margin where we see middle class families working. Is this inequality uh, that's driving this? Uh, the story is consistent. If you believe frames of reference mat matter for evaluation, the standard economic models don't include that aspect of behavior. They think that uh, a car that would have seemed uh, uh, to have brisk acceleration, like one you would have driven in the 50s, that would have gone from 0 to 60 in 8 seconds, it would have been a thrill to drive, 
that car will still thrill people in 2006. It's absurd, uh, and yet that's what the model literally says. Context matters, uh, and a student and I, a former student and I, Adam Seth Levine, have tried to see whether people who live in high inequality counties show more evidence of financial distress than people who live in inequality, uh, low inequality counties. And what we found is that in the most populous U.S. counties, counties with high 90-50 ratios, high Gini coefficient, a variety of different inequality measures, the 90-50 ratio is the 90th percentile earner's income divided by the median income for the county. We see longer commute times. That's one of the margins stressed families work. You can't afford a house in a school district that's good where you want to be. You move further out and you commute. Divorce probabilities are higher, even after controlling for everything else we know of that affects the probability of divorce. You're more likely to file for bankruptcy at the same income level and in, in, in uh, other similar circumstances. If the county you live in has had a big increase in inequality, the increase in your likelihood of filing for bankruptcy has gone up uh, in those counties. Home prices uh, at the median, even controlling for median uh, county income, are higher. Uh, we didn't find that. That was Bjorn of Ostrich Weikert, another student found it. In OECD countries, if we look at inequality across countries or over time, the higher income inequality is the longer hours people work, which is, again, uh, consistent at least with the hypothesis. Okay, I, I don't want to use uh, Bruce's time. I think I have, what, th two, three minutes, uh, David? Were you, did you, did you? Uh, the point is not that anyone's missed the, the, the sight of what's important here. People aren't stupid. They're not spending their money in foolish ways. It's totally a, a, an intelligible human motive to want your kids to go to a good school, to want to land the job that, that you'll have a better chance of landing with a decent suit to wear to your interview. That's not stupid. Uh, what this class of behaviors is, I've, I've called elsewhere, smart for one, dumb for all. It's the tragedy of the commons. It's the prisoner's dilemma. There are a lot of names for it. The elk have very broad antlers. This was natural selection's uh, uh, move to, to assure that uh, mutant male, male elk who had broader antlers, uh, since they would get access to more females, would pass that trait along preferentially to their offspring. And so there was a runaway arms race. The, the, the broad antlers are great for winning fights with other males, but they're horrible in every other sense. They, they uh, result in many deaths when the animal's chased into the woods by wolves. They can't maneuver their... their... But to have short antler, antlers wouldn't be a solution. You wouldn't get killed by wolves, but you wouldn't leave any offspring because you wouldn't win any fights. If they could vote to cut the antlers back by half, it would be a slam dunk. They would all want to do that. The same fights would be won by the same animals uh, there'd be no sacrifice, but individually, they're doing the best they can with these five-foot-wide racks of antlers. So my claim is that the spending patterns that have resulted from increased income and wealth inequality are a consequence of the, the very real, simple incentives that people face to take action in response to expenditures by others in the same local environments. And if we, want, if we want to change that pattern, the only thing we can do is adopt some policy that will change people's incentives about how to spend their money. I've got a policy proposal that I could talk about. I'll save it for later if you want me to. Your call. Um, how long do you think? Two minutes. Go. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is, a, this is a, a, a right down the middle policy proposal. I think if I had an hour, I could persuade... 90% of voters in red states and blue states to vote for this. Uh, I've only got 25 minutes, but uh, you're not in, in a red state, so I, I bet I'll 
I'll get most of the way there with most of you. <laughs> Scrap the income tax altogether, throw it out, and adopt in its place a progressive consumption tax. What does that mean? That means you uh, make use of the simple equation or identity, really, that you can use your income for two things. You can spend it on consumption or you can save it. So you report your income to the IRS the same as now. You report your savings to the IRS, how much you save this year. You have to create a special account in order to do that. We know how to do that, too, because we have 401ks and the like. And then the amount you consumed this year is just the difference between those two numbers. That's your consumption. And then we'll throw off a standard deduction, maybe $7,500 a person, so a family of four, the first 30000 you don't uh, pay tax no matter what, uh, and then income minus savings minus standard deduction. If that's a positive number, you start paying some tax. So the rate starts off. This is, again, taxable consumption, not how much you actually consume. You don't pay much at first, but then it starts escalating. Keeps going up and up. 50% if you're spending now, a quarter of a million dollars a year, you're paying tax on the next dollar you spend at 50%. And... Look at the outrageous rate at the end of the table here. You, you're, you're already spending $4 million a year. The next dollar you spend is going to cost you $3 overall to get that extra dollar's worth of stuff. You've got to buy the stuff for a dollar plus the $2 tax you're going to be due uh, on that dollar that you spent. Is this a, a huge hardship? It doesn't seem to me, if you actually look at what people spend who have $4 million a year to spend, uh, we're not really talking about major sacrifices. So much of the consumption at that level is positional. If everybody scaled back, it wouldn't matter. I'll just give you the quick example of wrist watches. Uh, here's the most expensive watch ever built, 2.7 million. Nobody buys that. It's, it's, uh, there are only a few of them. But a lot of people buy these forty dollars and $50,000 mechanical wrist watches. And uh, they have uh, four or five of them, I was told, when I did a, a field, uh, some field research on this. And they cycle through them. So it slips out beneath your sleeve at a meeting. Somebody sees you've got a protect Philippe Pagoda this day. You had a Cartier the day before. You must really be a player. They're signaling to one another you know, what, what their position is in the group. If everybody spent half as much, there'd be no sacrifice. Uh, you'd be a player just the same with a $20,000 watch if everyone else was, were spending $20,000 as you are now with a $40,000 watch. I said, how do people make do? They've got four or five of these watches. They're mechanical. They're, they're self-winding, but they're mechanical. If you have four or five of them, you leave them on the dresser, they, they run down. So you have to wind them up and set, set the correct time each day. And the clerk said, yeah, go next door. They've got a solution. So they had a little box covered in calf skin leather. You open it up. There are six mechanical wrists that keep your watches going while you're waiting to cycle them through. $5,800 for that box. Uh, you know, the rich could cut back on their consumption. We're not hammering them here. We're just saying, put it in your account. Keep score that way. And that would support growth and investment and so on. Wouldn't be that hard to do this. This, is, this was a proposal launched in 1995 by Sam Nunn and, and Pete Domenici. And it never really came to a vote. But Republicans like consumption taxation. They like a flat tax, which would be absurd, uh, in, in my humble opinion. Uh, it would give to, uh, uh, way more purchasing power after tax to people at the top who don't need any more purchasing power. But they like consumption taxation. Here would be a way for them to get some tax-free savings. And the Democrats would like the fact that this tax would raise a lot of revenue for things that need to be done in ways that wouldn't really hurt people. Uh, there'd be absolutely no 
diminished sense of life satisfaction if everybody spent a little less at the top. Okay. Well, this is going to be uh, a change of pace. Uh, uh, Bob provided us with uh, uh, a, a, a brilliant presentation uh, uh, that focused on uh, on the middle class and also uh, the top end of the uh, the income uh, distribution. Uh, the work I've been doing over the last uh, seven or eight years has really focused uh, at the bottom of the distribution. I have to say, I haven't done uh, a, haven't done a great deal of work over the last seven or eight years on incomes specifically. I've been thinking about the effects of the uh, the growth in imprisonment in the United States, but I think this uh, analysis of imprisonment in America has uh, uh, a great deal of significance for how we think about uh, American income inequality. So what I thought I would do would, uh, would be to take this work I've been doing on, uh, on imprisonment in America, talk about the effects, uh, the economic effects uh, of imprisonment, and then try at the end to draw out some general lessons uh, for, for what I think of as an institutional analysis uh, of income inequality. Okay, so that's the that's the plan here. Uh, so if I if I click the the big button, this will move the the, the little wheel. The oh no, side. this is for the Mac actually. So I'm I'll use page down on. <laughs> okay. So what what am I going to do? I'm going to begin by talking about uh, an an idea called mass imprisonment, and uh, this is used to describe the very high levels of incarceration. Uh, that have come to prevail in the United States uh, over the last 30 years. And uh, uh, after introducing this idea of mass imprisonment, uh, I'm going to talk a bit about the economic effects of having such a high rate of incarceration uh, in the United States. And, and then I'm going to take one more step uh, towards the end and think about what are the general lessons that this, uh, this work on, uh, on the prison uh, and its economic consequences. What are the general lessons that this research has for understanding uh, uh, income inequality uh, in America? Okay. So just to provide you with a little bit, uh, a little bit of context, uh, the rate of incarceration in the United States, the number of people, the proportion of people in prison or jail uh, through the uh, through the last century. Uh, didn't change greatly. Okay? From 1925 through to 1975, the incarceration rate in the United States was about 100 per 100,000, about 0.1% uh, of the population. Okay? This is a time series that shows the number of people in prison. You can see that over this period uh, there weren't great changes 
in the size of the penal system in the United States. And then in the mid-1970s, uh, things began to change and the criminal justice system began uh, to become much more punitive and the, uh, the penal population increased uh, every single year for the next 30 years. And this was totally historically novel. And it coincides with the period of rising income inequality in the United States. The, the big growth uh, in inequality uh, begins in the, uh, uh, the mid-1970s. So now we have this, uh, by the end of uh, the 1990s, the beginning of the 2000s, we have this extraordinarily large uh, penal population. Uh, it's about uh, uh, five-fold larger than the historic average in the United States. There are now about 2.1 million people uh, in prison or jail. Uh, and uh, uh, this is really something utterly new uh, in American, American criminal justice. Now, even so, right... The, uh, the rate of incarceration in the United States, here this is uh, the rate of prison incarceration, the number of people, the share of people in state or federal prison. Even so, uh, this is still only half of 1% of the US population, right? This is only 476 per 100,000, half of 1% of the US population. How can this level of institutionalisation uh, be significant uh, in a broader way uh, for understanding uh, American income inequality. Uh, the, the answer, I think, uh, resides in how concentrated uh, incarceration is and uh, how deeply inequality incarceration uh, has become. Uh, so here are some statistics showing uh, differences in incarceration rates, the proportion of people in prison or jail uh, in the United States on an average day at two points in time. 1980, at the beginning of the prison boom, and at 2000, at the height of the prison boom. And in the US population as a whole, uh, by the year 2000, there were about 700 people per 100,000 in prison or jail on an average day. And this was uh, more than a threefold increase over 1980. If we just look at young white men, the incarceration rate by 2000 for young white men is about 3.3%. So this is about fourfold higher uh, than the uh, incarceration rate in the population as a whole. And if we just look at young white men with very low levels of schooling, the incarceration rate is about 6.7%. So this is uh, an incarceration rate uh, that's more than 10 times higher, uh, or around 10 times higher uh, than in the US population as a whole. So incarceration is highly concentrated among young men, particularly young men with low levels of schooling. And as we well know, of course, there's a very dramatic racial disparity in incarceration. So here are some figures for African-Americans, right? Among uh, African-American men in their 20s, the incarceration rate by 2000 was about 11%. So one in nine uh, young black men by 2000 were in prison or jail. And if those uh, young black men had dropped out of high school, the likelihood that they were in prison or jail uh, by 2000 was about one in three. Okay, so one in three uh, low education young black men uh, were in prison on any given day in 2000. And the figures are now slightly higher, right, because the incarceration rate has, uh, has increased since 2000. Now, we can look at incarceration in a slightly different way. Instead of saying, what's the likelihood that someone's in prison on an average day, 
we can ask, what's the likelihood that someone's ever been to prison uh, in their life? Or what's the likelihood that someone's ever been to prison uh, by their mid-30s? Uh, Why might we be interested in this cumulative risk of incarceration, this lifetime risk of incarceration? Well, we might think that uh, incarceration confers an enduring status that affects a whole range of life chances uh, after you're released from prison. And so in trying to understand how incarceration affects inequality, we may be interested also not just in the fraction of people in prison at a given time, but the pool of people exposed to imprisonment who have ever been to prison uh, in their lives. Here are some figures uh, I calculated for cumulative risks of incarceration for a birth cohort born just after World War II. So these guys are born 45 to 49, and we're asking, what's the likelihood that they've ever been to prison? So that's at least 12 months in prison for a felony conviction, about 27 months at the median, a sizable period of institutionalisation. What's the likelihood that by 1979, when they're in their early 30s, that they've ever been to prison? And among young African-American men, uh, the figure is nearly one in five. So this is right at the beginning of the prison boom. If we were to go two decades uh, forward in time to the late 1960s, to men born between 65 and 69, and ask for that, uh, that birth cohort, what's the likelihood they've been, ever been to prison by 1999? The figures are dramatically higher. Right? And so among non-college African-Americans, this is African-American men born in the late 1960s, about 30% of those, uh, those young men who haven't been to college, have prison records. Uh, if we look at dropouts, uh, those who haven't completed high school, 60% uh, uh, of those young, low-education African-American men uh, have, have been to prison. So for that, uh, for that cohort of uh, low-skill minority men, prison has become a modal life event. Part of normal adulthood for this low-education group uh, of young men, part of the normal pathway of adulthood involves a significant period of time in prison. Okay? And this is historically utterly new. We need only go back 20 years when this wasn't so. Okay? So the, the, the experience of adulthood has been really quite fundamentally trans, transformed uh, by the prison boom. Okay. So the question now is, what's the economic effect of this massive... Uh, scale of incarceration. And we can think about this problem in two ways. Okay? Incarceration, uh, I'm going to argue, creates invisible inequality. Why invisible inequality? Because prisoners aren't counted in our typical measures uh, of economic well-being. Normally we measure things like employment rates or wage rates uh, using large labour force surveys, like the current population surveys, which are drawn on samples of households. And institutionalised populations are not counted in these surveys. Okay? So th this means if we have a large fraction of the population that are institutionalised, the conventional data sources are significantly overestimating the economic status of that population because of this invisible inequality. So that's one part of the story. The other part is uh, that these men, after serving time in prison, uh, are coming out uh, onto the labour market uh, and looking for work. And uh, here, as a consequence of their incarceration, 
They're suffering uh, diminished, employment, uh, diminished employment and earnings. So not only does a very large scale uh, of incarceration create significant invisible inequality, I'm going to argue that it's created uh, a significant increase in inequality at the bottom, deepening disadvantage at the bottom uh, as a consequence of incarceration. What is the scale uh, of this invisible inequality? Well, a very simple way uh, to estimate it says, let's calculate uh, the employment rate, say, uh, in the usual fashion, just by using uh, the current population survey, the, the big labour force survey that the Bureau of Labour Statistics uses to measure unemployment in the United States. Let's compare the employment rate measured in the conventional way to an alternative employment rate that counts prison and jail inmates in the population. This is the conventional rate. Let's just look at figures for African Americans. And this, uh, uh, this graph suggests that, uh, uh, that about, uh, by 2000, about 23% of African Americans uh, uh, were without jobs. That means they're either unemployed or not in the labour force. Uh, if we add uh, prison and jail inmates to our count of the jobless, uh, we can see uh, that by 2000, uh, young black men, this is all young black men, about a third of those uh, were out of work and the incarcerated population contributed about one quarter to total joblessness uh, among young black men. Uh, Here's another figure. This is a, a time series looking at jobless rates among non-college black men. Uh, the lower uh, series shows uh, the standard uh, employment figures or jobless figures that we get uh, from the usual data sources that don't count uh, the institutionalised population. And, uh, and this suggests that between 91 and the late 90s, through the period of the economic expansion, uh, that the employment situation... Uh, of these, uh, these young non-college black men uh, improved somewhat, okay, from the recession of 91 uh, through, uh, through the late 90s. But if we count prison and jail inmates in our assessment of the economic status of this group, we can see that joblessness really remained uh, quite flat uh, from 1991 and then increased, uh, increased through uh, the late 90s and into the 2000s. Okay, we can do a similar analysis for wages, but let me let me push on uh, in the interests of time. Uh, there have been declines in the black-white wage gap. Uh, have they been uh, real improvements in the relative economic standing of young black men? We argue no, that's not the case. Uh, the decline in the black-white wage gap for young men is really an artefact uh, of uh, very high rates of incarceration, where low earners have been uh, incarcerated at disproportionate rates if they're African-Americans. And uh, uh, the decline in the wage gap between blacks and whites is really an artefact of an increasing rate of incarceration uh, disproportionately among blacks. OK, uh, so that's invisible inequality. What about increasing inequality? What happens to you... Uh, if you go to prison, how does this affect your economic opportunities uh, in the labour market? Uh, and I have to say, people have different intuitions about this, right? Uh, at some level, we might expect people to do poorly on the labour market uh, after they've been to prison, not because they've been incarcerated, but guys at risk of incarceration 
are likely to do poorly and have pretty poor economic opportunities whether or not they've been to prison. Um, and so we can try and address that issue in a statistical analysis and these are estimates of uh, what I, I, I think are, are reasonable sorts of estimates of the causal effect of imprisonment. What's the consequences of going to prison uh, for a man compared to uh, uh, another man who's uh, uh, observably similar uh, who hasn't been incarcerated? What do these results show? It shows that after prison, the consequences uh, of incarceration are your earnings, uh, your hourly wages uh, will be reduced on average by about 25%. Uh, the annual weeks you work each year are reduced by about seven. This means your annual earnings, uh, your hourly wage rate times the hours you work in the year, your annual earnings uh, is going to be reduced by a large amount, about 40%, as a consequence of going to prison. Uh, the rate of wage growth over the life cycle is also reduced. Uh, most, uh, uh, most wage growth for men happens between ages 20 and 40. Uh, if you go to prison, that total wage growth over the life cycle uh, is reduced by uh, about 20, uh, 25%. The length of time you spend in any one job is also reduced by about a third. And uh, so the overall picture here is a group of people with prison records churning away in low-wage jobs in which they experience no uh, earnings, earnings growth and a lot of insecurity uh, in employment. These have big aggregate effects. A large lifetime earnings loss. Uh, a large loss in earnings uh, uh, for black workers as a whole, disproportionate to whites because of the racial disparity in incarceration. Uh, and uh, higher rates of poverty. Okay, so now the, the, second part, uh, the second part of the discussion. Are there general lessons here for the study uh, of income inequality? What can we generalise from this picture uh, of uh, mass imprisonment uh, in which people's economic opportunities are sharply diminished as a consequence of this massive growth uh, in incarceration? So I'm going to argue that we can understand mass imprisonment as a case study in an institutional account of income inequality. Now, there have been uh, uh, many kinds of uh, institutional explanations of the rise in inequality uh, in, in the United States. The two most common focus on the declining real value of the minimum wage and the decline of labour unions, okay? And I think uh, the analysis of mass imprisonment can contribute to this institutional understanding of rising inequality in a slightly different way from the effects of unions and the minimum wage. The analysis of unions and the minimum wage view these things as essentially price-setting institutions. What does the minimum wage do? It declares a floor below, wages, below which wages uh, are not allowed to form. Uh, what, do, what do unions do? They set wages in collective agreements, right? Uh, these are price-setting institutions. They influence inequality uh, by, setting, uh, by setting prices. The penal system isn't a price-setting institution. 
One of the ways in which it influences inequality is through uh, selection. It determines who is going to have economic status and who is not going to have economic status, who is going to be in the labour market and who is going to be out of the labour market. Our measures of invisible inequality suggest that these selection effects can be quite substantial, right, at least among young men and particularly among uh, young men with, uh, with little schooling. Okay, but we can also think of institutions as selection mechanisms in a variety of other areas. We might, be, we might think of uh, the institutions that influence women's labour force participation or uh, levels of disability. Levels of disability have increased uh, really significantly over the, last, uh, over the last 15 years or so. Or we might uh, think of institutions that affect retirement. These are institutions that affect who's in the labour force and who's out of the labour force, who has economic status that we measure with our labour force surveys and who doesn't have uh, a measured economic status. So the prison is a, a selection mechanism, not a price-setting mechanism, but a selection mechanism. What else do prisons do? Prisons uh, confer stigma. The reason why, or one major reason why, uh, ex-prisoners earn so little uh, in the labour market is because they bear the stigma of a criminal record. And employers don't want to hire job seekers with criminal records if they have alternatives uh, with clean records. So uh, here, uh, the prison is important uh, as, a source, uh, as a source of stigma, okay? a source of negative status, if you, if you, might, if you like. And we could generalise this analysis too, and we could uh, think about uh, other institutions that don't set prices but confer status, and that affects people's uh, uh, power in the marketplace. We could think about uh, bankruptcy, people's credit histories, military service, and, uh, and educational institutions, as, uh, uh, not just as sources of human capital, but as, uh, as uh, credentialing institutions. Okay, here are two additional ideas that are a little bit uh, less well-formed that I'm going to... Uh, uh, to try out on you. Institutions, thinking about the relationship between social institutions and inequality, I think uh, impels us to think about the changing pattern of inequality in a historical way. Not just in the sense of a sequence of time, but in terms of regimes of social stratification. Mass imprisonment, the historical significance of mass imprisonment, I think, resides in the fact that it succeeded the civil rights movement. It followed the civil rights movement. So immediately after uh, uh, the expansion uh, of citizenship for African Americans uh, had, had reached its apex, really, uh, in the late 1960s and uh, early 1970s, those gains, the promise of full citizenship, uh, began, uh, began to unravel uh, immediately uh, that full citizenship rights uh, uh, were declared, and this part of the significance of the prison boom uh, uh, lies precisely in this historic, uh, historic change uh, from the civil rights period to the post-civil rights period. Um, institutions are also important not because they provide us with a way of thinking about regimes of social stratification and historical change, uh, in patterns of inequality, institutions are important uh, in the production of discrete social groups. Okay? Uh, mass imprisonment, this term mass imprisonment was uh, devised by uh, David Garland 
uh, a sociologist of punishment. And for him, mass imprisonment was distinctive because it incarcerated not the individual offender, uh, but the whole, uh, the whole group. And Loic Waquant uh, described mass imprisonment as a race-making institution. It made the experience uh, of young African-American manhood. Uh, so I think this is another way to think about institutional effects. The institutions as uh, producing... Uh, Uh, institutions as producing discrete social groups. Here are some conclusions. I'm probably over time, so uh, I, I, won't dwell, uh, I won't dwell on these. The one thought I would uh, like to uh, put to you to, to try and bring uh, Bob's talk and mine together is that we're both talking about a similar historical period, right? We're both talking about a period that extends uh, from uh, the mid-1970s. And one way in which this period is often characterised uh, is in terms of a, uh, a, a burgeoning of the influence of market forces. So there was all this uh, deregulation in the economy and we, we saw a, a period of welfare reform, deunionisation uh, and, and so on. And it was really uh, uh, the, the flourishing of the influence of market forces that was driving up inequality. The prison boom provides a real puzzle uh, to this way of thinking because... Here's a case in which the role of the state is, in fact, expanding out of all control. This is not uh, a policy change that's uh, infused by uh, an ideology of free markets. This sees a very muscular and expansive role for the state, the prison boom. So the final thought I want to leave you with is, as we think about this period of growing income inequality, maybe what's going on here, uh, uh, driving, uh, driving a whole variety of institutional changes of which mass imprisonment is just one, uh, this may be propelled less by an ideology uh, of the market and more by shifting beliefs about the moral status of those at the bottom, the moral status of the poor, and as their moral status declined, they became increasingly suitable for punishment uh, rather than social support. So let me leave it at that. I sort of folded my comments into the uh, into the end there. So we're going to turn now. Well, first, thanks to, to both of our speakers, uh, and we're going to turn now just to, to questions from from the floor. Uh, I guess I'll I'll take the questions, but make it clear to whom you are, uh, which of the our two speakers you're addressing, or, or both, whatever the case may be.
Well, first of all, you have to ask whether it would even be a conceivable goal to eliminate inequality. I mean, every, every person I've read who's discussed that issue in the end comes around to say, well, if we had everybody put his contribution or her contribution to the national income into a pot and then we each took out one-tenth of it, then no one would have any incentive to get up in the morning and go do an unpleasant job. So you have to allow uh, rewards and vary with effort to some extent. If you allow that to happen, then talent is going to enter too. So uh, even egalitarians can see the need for there to be inequality. And if, if, if you have any kind of a market system, the amount of difference in, in reward that you get from even small differences going in can be, can be very large. So I think the, the best we can hope to do is to attenuate it. The work on health is interesting. Uh, what's discouraging is that uh, half of the people will be in the bottom half no matter what policies we adopt. Uh, but it does seem to, to matter too how far below you are of the norm. If your two standard deviations beneath the median, that's more stressful, I think, for a family than, than if you're half a standard deviation beneath the median. You know, half of the, the people in Sweden are below the median earnings level, and yet inequality is not seen to be anywhere near as big a problem there uh, compared to what is reached here. And I think it's just because the degree of difference in income isn't as great. Also, I think there's a, a, a great deal that can be done if you're going to focus on the key elements of consumption, access to health care, a decent school, a safe place to live. If you can somehow provide for those things, then uh, I think people can get used to the idea that some people have Porsche SUVs and other people don't. That's not uh, such a, a, a big difference in, in life prospects. So the people who buy those get used to them quickly and are disappointed in, in, according to the data I've seen. So, so yeah, yeah, I think you have to be clear that you can't really level the outcomes, but uh, I, I don't think it's a, a conflict between making the gap smaller and, and giving incentives to waste money just trying to everybody out to each other. So you want both. You want both not to waste money in the market race and to diminish the scope of inequality. Both. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, uh, from my perspective, there isn't w one story that can quite embrace both those trends. I think uh, the, the, the prison boom, uh, part, of what was driving, uh, part of what was driving the prison, uh, prison boom was a, a, a really substantial deterioration uh, in the economic opportunities of... Uh, uh, young unskilled men in urban areas, which is part of the story of, uh, of uh, rising income, uh, rising income inequality. But I think there was also a political dimension uh, uh, to the prison boom uh, as well, which was uh, partly partly connected uh, uh, to racial politics uh, and uh, criminal justice became increasingly uh, increasingly racialized and. Appeals were made to white voters who were discomforted by 
uh, increasing rates uh, of crime, uh, but also the erosion of white privilege uh, uh, through civil rights and also uh, uh, to uh, the disorder associated with protest activity and, uh, uh, as well. And it was, uh, it was those sorts of anxieties, I think, uh, 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 that politicians, particularly on the conservative side, uh, were able to develop uh, and uh, resonated with white voters, uh, particularly in the South. This is where uh, a lot of the, the largest growth in the penal system uh, is is happening. So I, I think the, the prison story for me is is very much a chapter in American race relations uh, that is is, is uh, perhaps not relevant in a, a really direct way uh, to the growth. Uh, uh, to the growth in inequality, uh, uh, except through this, uh, uh, you know, through through the collapse of uh, urban labour markets for, for low-skill men. Yeah, at the high end, I think uh, we've seen similar things happen in the past when the canals got built, when the railroads got built. Uh, there were new technologies that have come on many times that enable a key player to extend her reach over a broader span of the market. So. Uh, when transportation costs get lower, you see fewer piano companies because the best pianos can get shipped very distantly. The, the level of leverage uh, exploded during this period. I mean, because of the information revolution, it's, it was possible to figure out who the best performer was in each arena and figure out how to get in contact with that person and figure out how to get that person's service delivered to you so the, the best diagnostician could actually give you advice from London if, if your child had a rare illness, the, the data could be Minute over the lines, and they, they could all uh, give advice on the most important cases, the hardest cases. The CEOs uh, used to be that you had to be promoted from within. I mean, leverage alone isn't, isn't the answer. I mean, a, a good decision at the top of GM in 1930 would have been worth extra millions of dollars a year. But always it was the practice to promote CEOs from within the company, and that meant there was no real external labor market for CEOs. Gradually, and then, and then with an increasing rapidity, they've been bringing in CEOs from the outside. The, the Lou Gerstner case was a watershed. No one would have believed that you could run a computer company by hiring a tobacco executive, but, but gradually the idea sunk in that if you were good at marketing and motivating people and finance, you, you had tech people for the, 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 the stuff that was industry specific. And so, that meant that there was, in effect, a, a, an active market for the talent, not just that they were worth a lot more to get slightly better talent, but you actually had to bid against other companies to get the talent. But that was a, a real watershed event, uh, similar to what you saw in baseball with the abolition of the reserve costs, you know, the players' leverage went up with the game of the week coming, uh, when they per performed in front of millions of players, uh, fans, instead of only thousands when the game went on television. But their salaries were flat as a pancake
I mean, as a, as a, it's interesting. We don't often get normative questions in, uh, <laughs> in, 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 in sociology seminars, sort, sort of oddly in a way, because we're seen as the ones who, who don't make a very good distinction between uh, positive and normative analysis. But um, I, so, I mean, something that, uh, that Bob and I were talking about this, uh, this morning that makes me pessimistic, there's an empirical prediction uh, uh, that uh, the, the, the state is going to, there's going to be a renewed role for public policy in uh, uh, assisting the losers uh, of the, the new inequality. And uh, what makes me pessimistic uh, is that the, uh, the increase in inequality uh, in many ways, I think, has become self-sustaining. And so the kinds of effects that it has uh, uh, on, on families, on health, on patterns of consumption, uh, and so on, uh, mean that those who, who become poor uh, are more likely to stay poor and uh, their children uh, are more likely to be poor. Uh, and those who do well... Uh, are more likely to improve their advantage, and their children are more likely uh, to do well. So that makes me uh, that makes me pessimistic. And you know, you think of the prison boot; it's an utterly disempowering uh, change in public policy. And the communities that could possibly have an interest in reversing it uh, are completely disempowered uh, by the expansion of uh, mass imprisonment. So, as an empirical prediction, I think I'm very pessimistic. Yeah, I'm actually quite optimistic. <laughs> uh, uh, maybe it's just a temperamental thing, but uh, the fact is that the current policies are, are so far from what seems to make sense on a dispassionate reading of, of the evidence that uh, they're, they're colossally wasteful. And I think once people have the discussion you need to have and see that, then there won't be anyone around to resist changing public policy in the direction you want. There, there's, I think, been the perception that the the wealthy have captured the reins of government and are using it to sort of uh, loot the, the, the establishment for their, all, their own benefit. They're running themselves tax cuts and deregulating de their businesses. But if you actually look at the overall social science evidence on the consequences of all that, the, the people who get the tax cuts are able to build bigger mansions. And uh, it's natural to expect that's going to please you when you do that, because when you get something bigger, it, it generally does. But what people don't take into account is that when everybody builds bigger, then the bigger size just becomes the norm. So there's not any real enduring gain from that. Uh, Richard Laird said, in a rich country, a, a man proves to his wife that he loves her by giving her a dozen roses. In a poor country, a man gives a rose. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a, a zero-sum process that puts a lot of money to waste at the same time. Uh, if you're rich and you drive a Porsche 911 and you, and you run your car into a deep pothole, you destroy a wheel and tire that costs 1600 bucks. Uh, if, if you uh, live here, the, the containers come into the ports uninspected, 95% of them. We don't have money enough to do that. There are loose nuclear weapons all over the former Soviet Union that we're now cutting the Energy Department budget uh, for the program that was meant to round those up. So I'm rich, I get a tax cut, that means we can't pay for those basic things, and I get to build bigger. Once people think about that, it seems like I'm, I'm optimistic and I think, well, am I really serving my purposes here with this mix? You know, 
uh, pollution permits. We should we should auction off the right to, to emit sulfur into the air. And people thought that was totally outrageous. The, the environmental groups were offended. Now, now the Sierra Club touts this program. It took 30 years, you know, gradually sort of handling why you would get more pollution reduction for the same dollar spent if you did it that way rather than had everybody cut back by 15%. Uh, it's, you know, you've got to keep slugging away in the trenches. And, you know, if you have a compelling argument, then eventually uh, you can get some purchase with it. Uh, yeah, it's easy to get discouraged, but. The nice thing about there being trillions of dollars of waste is think of what you can do, you know, you know, without without really giving anything up you care about. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.